1: Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, August 2nd, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Jack Farley and our guest, Darius Dale from 42 Macro. Here are the stories we're looking at right now. Stocks fractionally lower at the close after advancing this morning on strong earnings, then declining after the ISM factory activity gauge weakened, I would say slightly really, uh, for the second month in a row. Jack, what are you looking at today?
2: I'm looking at exactly that. Uh, the ISM uh, Purchasing managers, manager's Index came in at 595 half below the 61.0 that was expected from economists. Of course, uh, when you're talking PMIs, a reading above 50 indicates monthly economic growth, whereas a reading below 50 indicates uh, economic contraction. So, 59.5 does indicate that the economy is still growing. It's just that, as you mentioned, Ash, the pace of that recovery is itself slowing down so I want to talk to Darius about that I also know Darius is looking at economic data uh, from South Korea ash yeah
1: so a slight decline on the rate of expansion on ism second derivative I'm also looking at the infrastructure bill senators are putting the finishing touches on an infrastructure bill in the Senate heading soon for a vote how big will it be uh, about a billion dollars in the bill in the Senate 3.5 trillion excuse me one trillion dollars on the bill in the Senate and 3.5 trillion Trillion uh, in the house got a lot to reconcile there. I'm very eager to hear Darius's take on that. Talking of which, Darius Dale, always a pleasure to have you on the yes. Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's great to be back, Ash. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Oh, doing great. Darius, what are you looking at today? What are the things that are popping out to you on your dashboard?
3: Yeah, so I mean, I would say the ISM data was marginally confirming of three things we've been talking about for months at 42 macro. One, growth is going to slow in the back half of the year. Two, inflation is going to slow in the back half of the year. And three, growth and earnings are likely to start to disappoint as we get further into Q3 and, into, and obviously into Q4. And so in terms of that, the data point that was released this morning, I think it was really kind of one of the first... One of the few shots across the bow we've seen, as it relates to slowing economic growth, most of the shots across the bow we've received in the last few months have been in the direction of accelerating inflation. This is sort of the first, in terms of okay, the growth outlook is a lot more complicated than we also init- we initially assumed as investors and economists. And ultimately, I think the dynamic that's at play here is an economy that is transitioning from. Past peak from peak demand in the goods and manufacturing sector, we're rolling past that peak, but we're not actually getting to a strong, solid handoff for services sector consumption. So we're creating a little bit of a soft patch in the economy uh, for investors to risk manage.
1: Yeah, extremely well said, uh, Darius. A relationship status to the economy, it's complicated. Jack, dive in.
2: Well, I didn't want to ask Darius. Just about the other economic data he's seeing in, in South Korea and how, Darius, how are your models evolving? Because I, I read your note today and you said that you expected that we would ret- return to a Goldilocks regime. But, however, deflation remains your primary, uh, your, your most probabilistic outcome. So, how could you can you reconcile those, those two facts for us?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It kind of goes back to the old post-great uh, financial crisis era of. You know, bad news equals good news. Don't fight the Fed. That whole mantra. I think we're likely uh, after investors sort of figure out how the Fed is likely to respond. And I think this Friday's job support might go a long way to it, helping investors understand that hey, we're back in this regime, this old regime where many of us know how to risk manage, which is hey, we're going to cheer on bad news in the economy as long as the inflation dynamics are supportive of that. Um, if you don't mind, I actually put together a series of charts uh, we can walk
1: through. Yes, uh, please.
3: Yeah so um the first chart um there's a scatter plot it shows it just shows the the x axis is the latest manufacturing PMI for all the major economies in the world and the y axis shows the delta between the 6 month moving average and the 12 month moving average and i use that as a proxy for um you know the trend and growth of the trend in that indicator and as you can see on the chart you know there's some pretty large major emerging market economies that are actually south of the of the y, of the x axis i e they're showing trending deceleration and a couple are actually to the left, which means they're still in contraction mode, China being one of the most obvious ones there. But even the new order, the ISM new orders print is actually looking like it wants to go below uh, the x-axis over the next couple of months. So clearly, we're very obviously moving past peak demand into the manufacturing sector. And the reason I bring that up is when you look at the data that you you highlighted, you alluded to, Jack, uh, out of Korea. Korea publishes this business sentiment indices. Their their diffusion indices very much like the ISM survey data, um, and they sort of very much track and also lead uh, the ISM uh, data, or not the ISM, but ISM data, market PMI data, global PMI data by one to two months. And those data points, they they came out for the month of August already, and they're actually showing incremental deceleration. So investors should expect. PMIs to trend lower from here all the way through the back end of the year into the early part of next year, uh, which was was that, that first chart, is, uh, that second chart is showing, the, the third chart is showing the Korean uh, BSI data relative to ISM data. It's the same, same dynamic. We're rolling over, we're coming off the cycle peak, and it's likely to trend lower uh, for a really long period of time. And the reason I bring that up, or a long period of time as it relates to investable duration, you know, three to six months. Uh, and the reason I bring that up is the next chart we show what we call our macro regime summary table. And so, for those of you guys who are new to our framework and how we think about managing macro risk, we believe we think about the world in regime, regime segmentation terms. of the market regime, what markets are doing, and then there's the bottom-up macro regime, what the economy is doing. And when you see this table, the first thing you should notice is the color coding. And we're coming off this sort of very elongated patch of this, this, this sea of this patch of green, this green grass that the US and global economies have really you know, sort of feasted on, uh, grazed on for an extended period of time in terms of perpetuating risk asset performance. Well, if you can look at the chart, you can kind of see in Q3, sometime in mid to late Q3, almost every economy in the world is going to go from that green grass to back in the murky blue waters again. And those murky blue waters are characterized by economies that are trending lower in both growth and inflation terms. So that's an important takeaway. And that's the reason why... The VIX is making higher lows, so that's the next chart, and high yield credit spreads are making higher lows. But to answer your question and then land the plane on this discussion, eventually, investors will figure out that, hey, all this bad news, this disappointment uneconomically, it's going to take the wind out of the sails of inflation, it means the labor market recovery is going to take longer to actually get back to anything close to resembling maximum employment. I'm actually starting to believe, and that's a different discussion, that it might take even longer. And the reality is, is that keeps the Fed in game or in, in the game as it relates to uh, the pace of asset purchases. So um, we have a view that you're going to see a taper uh, a tapering announcement in November, and as commencement of tapering either in December or January. But even that is at, uh, at risk in terms of this da- these data.
1: Fantastic, fantastic use of visualization of data on all of those charts, Darius. Really a pleasure to look at them because it does sort of frame the entire global economy in a way that you can actually see it in a single place, which I think is pretty extraordinary. Uh, Jack, let's jump over to you. So, bad news is good news. Bad news is coming, but bad news is good news. What are your thoughts? Any questions for Darius?
2: God, uh, so many, Ash. I think I'll have to start with that last chart. Uh, Darius, could you explain for the people at home why rising credit? Uh, yields kind of is is very dangerous for the economy and how it can unwind a bull market. Yeah. So, I mean, the,
3: the Fed's primary transmission mechanism in terms of relaxed monetary policy goes to the, the credit market. And what's the cost of credit? What's the marginal supply of credit? Um, are people demanding credit because the cost of supply are abundant? or cost of low supply is abundant, you know, so on and so forth. So, as you can see from the chart, and both that chart and the VIX chart are basically the same chart. You know, they've been making, you know, because credit is actually a volatility product, to be quite honest. But anyway, both of those lines have been making a series of lower highs and lower lows for an extended period of time, in my opinion, as a function of that green grass in the, in the prior table. Well, now that the grass is no longer green and increasingly it's likely to be broadly blue, i.e., trending deceleration and growth and inflation by the you know latter part of Q3 and then obviously throughout Q4. So that's the reason the slopes of those lines have inflected. Now you can make the case as an investor that, hey, the slopes of those lines have inflected, and we actually need to go up a lot in the near term, uh, and, and obviously price in some some real some real headaches for investors in, in terms of risk asset performance. I happen to not believe that, even though our model is currently saying that's a, an elevated probability. I happen to believe that the pace of the job market recovery is something that's going to take a little bit longer than investor consensus expects. We've obviously been on this program you know, for over a month now talking about inflation coming off. We got the first real evidence of that today in terms of the prices paid index, and you're going to see more and more evidence of disinflation as we go throughout the later part of the summer and into Q4.
2: Jack, did you want to follow up? Yes, thank you, Ash. So, uh, just um, if we put that chart of the high yield back up, uh, the top chart is the option-adjusted spread, which is uh, the basis point. So, 337. That means it's 3.37 percent of a of a spread above what the Treasuries are earning. Yeah. and then the the uh columns uh, on the below the little the little chart is the rate of change uh for twenty two days so uh, you know like four and a half trading weeks and you'll see that from July till now that has been increasing meaning meaning that spread spreads have been widening, which is contrary to the pattern over the past uh year and a half. My question for you Darius, is if we were to uh, you know go wind the clock forward two months, what do you think that uh the high-yield credit spreads will be.
3: Yeah, I mean, they're, they're likely to be higher than they are currently. I mean, who knows? I mean, I don't want to put out a price target because it, it's coming out of thin air. But I do believe that the trend has inflected in high in credit spreads, i.e. the bare minimum we're likely to be neutral for an extended period of time from the perspective of our volatility-adjusted momentum signal. But the reality is we could easily break to bullish and actually trend higher. From here, Um, you know, really, it's not about where the level is or where it's going to be in two months. In my opinion, I think what's more, a bigger question for investors to answer is how fast does it move higher? Like, if it goes from three thirty-seven basis points to five hundred basis points over in a matter of you know three or four weeks or four or five weeks, that's a real, real big issue for investors. You're talking about probably a ten to twelve, if not fifteen percent decline in the equity market. Now, if it goes to From 337 to 400 over by the end of, I don't know, let's end of October, that's a much different environment. It's it's a harder environment to manage risk. It likely means the dispersion regime that we've seen in terms of investors favoring defensive sectors and style factors, style factors are the types of characteristics that stocks might have that are irrespective of how the business makes money. And it may continue to favor uh, that defensive posturing, which is something we would argue uh, is fundamentally sound as it relates to those, those bottom up macro regime outlooks.
1: Yeah. And just to zoom the camera out a little bit to folks who are not as familiar with the fixed income markets, what we're talking about here on this option-adjusted spread is the rate above US treasuries that investors are demanding uh, to accept high-yield debt. In other words, how much more do you have to be paid? Uh, How much more do you have to be compensated to hold high-yield debt right now? 337, that's 337 basis points, 3.37% above treasuries of similar duration.
2: Yeah. And uh I've heard some people say that a bond, really, uh, a credit bond or high-yield bond, investment-grade bond, whatever, really is a treasury with a short a credit default swap attached, where you're, you're shorting the, the credit default swap risk. And you take on that risk, and, and you're paid a premium, just to think of it in option service. But Darius, your charts are so great. we got to go back to this. Uh, let's put this chart up which of the table, which if, if anyone is watching this live on an iPhone, I'm sorry about this, but I'll try and make it clear. The United States is the very, very top. And the projections is where the sort of the black turns blue, and that's when the the green grass turns into the deep, deep waters. Uh, I don't know if D stands for deflation or if it stands for for the deep waters. But Darius, <laughs> tell us what how, you know. How could you remain bullish if you think that growth is going to slow down and deflation? Uh, is is going to take over? I mean, haven't haven't have we reached the point of maximum efficacy of central bank policy? How you know if you really think that growth is going to slow down? How could how can you remain bullish?
3: Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll ask that question by saying I think a lot of investors thought we reached the point of maximum efficacy of central bank policy in like 2013, but the reality is we didn't. <laughs> there's always more. There's always more. That's the one thing I think, mean, we've all learned, or at least people my age in this in this business learn. Yeah. Man, it, there's always more. Don't you don't keep, fight these guys.
1: Yeah. And so it's keep, and, no, I was gonna say we keep hearing from the the skeptics that they that they're about to run out of bullets for the gun, uh, and yet there are always more shots to fire.
3: The gun always gets bigger, the bullets get shinier. The, that's the name of this game, and that's unfortunately and this is how the economy is wired to work. Right? Like we live in a very credit based economy, uh, private, uh, you know, the U.S. in particular. You know, private non financial debt is 50% of it. its off bank balance sheet. So non bank lenders are actually financing half the economy, which means they actually need liquidity to function. They need leverage. They need all these things that aren't necessarily uh, visible to the naked eye. And this is why so many uh, great investors spend a lot of time focusing on the plumbing of it all. But in terms of answering your, your question, Jack, how could you be bullish? Well, it's really just kind of playing the, playing, rolling the ball forward or kind of lining the ducks up as it relates to the policy response. You know, most of the, the real, the, in terms of those Ds, so yes, it means deflation. When we talk about deflation from a bottom up macro regime perspective, it means that we have growth and inflation projected to slow in that particular interval. Those Ds aren't nearly as deep as the deep water that we saw in the spring of last year. That was a function of the early part of the pandemic and the associated lockdowns. It's not the same color of Ds, so in ter- or it's not the same hue or the depth of Ds. So the reality is, asset markets have conditioned themselves to actually respond positively to modest decelerations in growth and modest decelerations in inflation. And guess why? <laughs> it's because it means you keep the Fed in, involved in the in the, in the in the game as it relates to the pace and the size of their asset purchases. So to me, the number one bearish catalyst investors had to risk manage this in 2021 was the timing and, and pace of the Fed taper. If anything, I think we're starting, the investors are likely, over the next couple of weeks, really going to come around to our view that, hey, look, man, this tapering thing is more monster than it is real reality in the near term, which is how you can get another couple of months of Goldilocks-ish price action out of, out of this buy and out of, uh, out of you know broader um, risk yeah. assets.
1: Let me just jump in to again, once again, zoom the camera up. Explain this uh, hydrographic map as we map the deep blue sea here. What we're really talking about here uh, is seeing these uh, this reflation and Goldilocks scenario turn a bit uh, a bit darker a bit. Uh, a bit more um, deflationary, what are some of the gauges you're looking at? And how would you explain this, Darius, at the 50,000-foot level to people who are not yet uh, as familiar with thinking about markets in a macro framework? Just give us a sense of how you explain that reflation and Goldilocks, and then what it means for us to go into a deflationary scenario.
3: Yeah, so that, that's a great question. So in terms of how the, the, the model of the system works. Um, you know, if you have growth and inflation as the two primary factors that you're looking at to analyze economies, obviously in rate of change terms, you can wind up in four different states. We call it Goldilocks, that's where growth is accelerating and inflation is decelerating. Reflation is what we call when both growth and inflation are accelerating simultaneously. We call it inflation when growth is decelerating and inflation is accelerating. And then lastly, we call it deflation when growth and inflation are decelerating simultaneously. And so, in terms of the reaction function for asset markets, when you go from a Reflation to a deflation. The number one thing that investors should do is go from being short duration to being long duration. That's a trade we put on nearly three months ago to the day,
1: um, going back to early May, and and that's a view because hey, we have this view that give us give us an example of that trade. I'm sorry, Tarius, give us an example of that trade for people who may not be familiar with the duration terminology.
3: Oh, sorry, yeah, the 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 simple simplest simplest way is to be short bonds or long bonds. Uh, In in terms of the interplay between bonds and equity markets, you want to be. When you're short duration, you tend to want to be long cyclicals, like the financials, energy, materials, industrials. When you're or when you're short duration, you want to do that. When you're long duration, you want to be in digital economy growth type exposures, all the kind of stuff that tends to correlate to the Nasdaq as opposed to the Russell two thousand. So, that's a, those are the easiest ways to express going from short duration to long duration. And the reality is, a lot of investors have written off this bond move, this bond this move, this nascent <laughs> bond bull market. And they basically say, hey, no, it's all technicals, it's this, it's that, and no one is talking about, hey, we're heading into a, the most obvious deceleration in growth and inflation that I've seen in my career. And so the reality is, is I think investors have written that off and saying, oh, it's obvious, we don't have to worry about it. But the reality is, that's not how markets work. Markets function on the rate of change of growth and inflation, and the reaction function to monetary and fiscal policy therein.
1: We should say you're on the same page with Raoul, uh, on this, who also sees this uh, double dip coming and then more stimulus coming out of the Fed and fiscally. And finally, the other point that you just made, which I think sums up all the points that we talked about earlier, uh, was the rate of change. One of the things that you watch to see when there's a regime shift is how quickly these indicators are moving in the opposite direction. Go ahead, Jack. Jump in.
2: Yeah, uh, Darius, I want to give credit to you. I think you were very early on the being bullish on bonds when... Thirty-year yields, ten-year yields reached their low point. A lot of people, including myself, were convinced by the very high inflation prints. And even though I still maintain that that is the logical case to be bearish on bonds, clearly the price action has has spoken differently. I want to ask you: Is that still your view? Because I saw um, someone say on Twitter today that people who are, you know, pounding the table being bullish on bonds, is are kind of signaling the the uh, um, the bottom in yields in the same way that people who were, you know. Cheering uh, the uh, being bearish on bonds, we're signaling the top in yield. And I also, you tweeted something very uh, shortly before we were on the air. You said, in the meantime, um, bonds uh, by the ETFs TLT and EDV uh, are, are overbought here for those of you who prefer a more active risk management approach. So are you still constructive on that long uh, part of the yield curve? Yeah,
3: I mean, look, the, the reality is the asset allocation won't change as long as we still have those bottom-up cyclical dynamics really impacting markets and more importantly sending signals to both the investors and the Fed. In the short term, however, obviously it would yield at 117 that bonds are overbought. I mean, not obviously, but in terms of our probable range model, yes, they are overbought. So if you you might want to lighten up on some of that duration risk that you're taking, i.e., long bonds and long sort of Nasdaq thing type exposures. But the reality is, I don't see a scenario absent a real material surprise to the upside with respect to our inflation projections, that could really get the asset markets off this train because it's, it's almost self-perpetuating. The yields go lower. Growth expectations come down. Investors and businesses pull back on their capex plans and their hiring plans, and it starts to become self-fulfilling. Now, again, we're not—I'm not necessarily in in Raoul's camp by saying we're actually going to have a real negative double dip. I don't necessarily see Delta as the as the driving catalyst for that because I don't think the political will is there to have an overreaction to to, to Delta and the proliferation therein. I do, however, believe that the. Asset asset markets and investors are really coming around to the view that we've had for a little bit now that the pandemic is an endemic. Like it's, it's, if it's not Delta, it's going to be something else. I mean, pick your you know your Greek letter. Like it's, this is a now an endemic, and the reality is our expectations of okay, you know, at the beginning of the year, right? I was on I was on Real Vision with uh, with, with with Ed Harrison. We're saying, hey, look, we're gonna have a lot of positive momentum in the first, you know, channeled into the first half of the year. Once you get into the back half of the year, I think it's gonna set up for a lot of disappointment because the reality is we're not going back to what we saw in 2019. We're just not doing that, and so it's gonna the labor market's gonna take longer to recover. And asset markets have to understand that reaction function out of the Fed in terms of you know the timing of tapering, the pace of tapering, and ultimately how buying 120 billion dollars of bonds a month in perpetuity might actually have a positive impact on asset markets.
1: So what's the call that you have in terms of the short, intermediate, and longer term for the price of bonds? And what yields are you watching? What durations are you watching most closely on the yield basis? Yeah, well, I think the the number one thing that's really kind of smacked me across
3: the face in the last couple of weeks is the tips market. And now, granted, I get a lot of pushback when I talk about the tips market because the Fed owns, I want to say, a quarter or a third of the the, the tips market. But the reality is, for the 75% of us or the 66.7% of us that are still actually transacting in that market, we're seeing all time lows in 10 year tips yields. So to me, that is a very clean cut, obvious signal that growth is decelerating. Everyone spent the last sort of two to three months, if not three to four months, just yelling at the top of their lungs about inflation whether or not it was transitory or whether or not it was permanent. Now, I get all the conversations about OER, which we talked about months ago. It's it, it's all about inflation. But the reality is everybody's missing the fact that the economy is not going back to 2019 in a straight line. Yeah. And importantly, we actually might have a much more of a start-stop, regimented, segmented process in terms of the recovery than a lot of investors are anticipating. So all that really tells you is that, hey- these expectations for, I don't know, 10-year to be at 2% by year-end, maybe they're right. I just don't see it. Certainly not in the context of that table.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to LipsonAds.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: Yeah, let me just yeah. jump in and say that these t- the TIPS markets that we're talking about here, the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, uh, these represent the real rate of interest, uh, neg- net of inflation. Uh, so seeing these at negative rates suggests that there are negative real yields uh, based on the break-even point that you calculate using TIPS. Jack, go ahead.
2: Yeah, and if I may, Ash, I think that it's not just that these yields are uh, these real yields are negative; it's that they're the most negative that they've ever been. Yeah. On Friday, they were negative 1.16. So after inflation, that you're you're paying negative rates. And Darius, I want to ask you a question, which is, um, I, I know you guys can't see it, but let's put up a chart of gold relative to the U.S. 10-year real rate, and they trade typically in lockstep. It's a pretty strong macro correlation. But uh, gold is kind of lagging. If gold, if the chart, if the red line were up to the to the 10-year Treasury rate, gold should be in the 2,000, and, and what we're not. So, what is your your view on uh, on, on real rate Darius? Do you think gold should be higher, or do you think that real rates should be uh, uh, higher as well?
3: I would argue, well, I wouldn't necessarily argue that rates should be higher, just given our views on growth and inflation. I would argue that gold is probably mispriced relative to that outlook. And part of the reason gold is mispriced is because I think investors are still concerned about inflation and ultimately what that may mean in terms of pulling forward the Fed's reaction function. We saw what happened when the Fed did what it did in June um, in terms of the dollar and gold and the dollar and a lot of commodities. And so I think investors in the you know in the, in the bullion market are probably you know apprehensive about putting on maximum exposure there in the context of what is a very clear and obvious signal to be you know overweight that particular asset. So uh, I would argue gold needs to be higher, but you know again it's it's it, you know it's neither here nor there. We're not valuation-based investors. The market is priced where the market is priced, and ultimately the thing that changes the market price is not valuation. It's the rate of change of growth, it's the rate of change of inflation, and it's how monetary and fiscal policymakers react to those two things.
1: Talking of policymakers uh, and legislators, I wanted to jump in and close the loop with one thing that we mentioned in the opening stories, uh, which is the infrastructure bill coming out of the Senate $1 trillion there, $3.5 trillion coming out of the House. What are your thoughts on how those get reconciled and what the overall state of play is with regard to that stimulus package?
3: forgive me for laughing because we, we talk about trillions of dollars now like they're just nothing I mean we went from like oh man shocking all tarp is 600 billion dollars and now it's like I don't know three and a half trillion why not you know two and a half trillion why not? oh yeah get out of the trillion. and so um you yeah, know that, that's kind of where we are and I think we talked in, in, in the this show was too short to, to go and unpack all the things why I think that is that change has occurred but um go check out my uh, my recent knockckerbo interview for that um anyway. In terms of the, the, the fiscal policy, I would, there's two things I, I think are, I don't know if they're being missed by asset markets, but I certainly think the bond market gets it more than the stock market. And the reason I say that is that, OK, look, even if we get every number that's hit the tape in the last few weeks, $550 billion in terms of hard infrastructure, $3.5 trillion in terms of the budget and all the soft infrastructure and stuff like that, even if we hit those two numbers and we get it through the, uh, the, the reconciliation process and the voting process, it's still going to be a fiscal drag. In fiscal 22 relative to fiscal 21. I mean, that, that, that's something I don't hear a lot of people talking about is that, look, once you once you create an economy that is so hooked up on dope and morphine and heroin and all this other stuff, you got to keep shooting the needle. <laughs> the needle's got to get bigger, by the way, if you want to get the same high. And that's the problem with markets. And, and I think that's not the problem with markets, sorry. That is the opportunity that investors who saw the deceleration the back half of the year into next year saw back in the early part of this year and said, hey, Duration is mispriced because even if we get those numbers, we're still going to have a fiscal drag. And oh, by the way, if the pandemic turns into an endemic, we're certainly not going to hit the growth expectations for 2021 or
1: 2022. Right. Speaking of those numbers getting larger, Darius, your shirt appears to have uh, stripes on a semi-log y-axis. Yes. Only way that we can represent this growth. <laughs> yeah. You have a geek out, man. I love that. (laughs) Talking about (laughs) interquartile memes before the show started. (laughs) Yeah, IQM and semi-log Y. Jack, I know we had a clip that we wanted to talk about, something that you're very interested in discussing. Throw that over to you.
2: Thanks, Ash. Well, uh, this week on Real Vision, we are covering oil, that commodity that's really at the heart of so much of the economy and it went on a wild ride. Last April, it went negative, uh, shocking veterans and uh, you know new people in the market alike. And since then, it's been exploding higher. Uh, two weeks ago, we had a serious falter uh, for the oil market. So, people are wondering, what's going on? Um, so, this week, we're really exploring that question. And today, we began that question um, with, with two veterans of the Oil market, Joe Raya and uh, Rick Bensignor, uh, where they talk about oils going negative in April 2020. Let's take a look. And I remember that day live in trading and seeing the price go less than zero. And you're kind of doing, you know, as
3: it was getting closer to a and, dollar and, and then it broke. And am I seeing my screen right? I mean, I mean, I'm looking at prices that are less than zero. People are selling futures contracts for less. Than zero dollars per barrel of oil, exactly. it made no sense. And yet, if you
2: were stuck going to delivery the stock long, it's—I mean—it must have been a hard It was a—it was a—it was a real big issue for the, the exchange for sure. Um, it was also a big issue for the clearing firms that were involved in that.
1: And so, again, I think the most of it came out of it was somewhere in Asia. Uh, and and again, I think a lot of it was retail trading firms, tra- traders that didn't understand. What it meant to go, you know, hold a, a contract going right into expiry and the volatility that happens when everybody's rushing for the exits at the same time and there's no
2: buyers or there's no sellers.
1: Well, there it is, Jack. Contextualize what we just saw.
2: I mean, I, I think it's it's it spoke for itself. Um, you, you've got to watch the interview this week. Is going to it's phenomenal content. I just spoke to an uh, an expert. It airs on Thursday. Tony Greer is rounding out the week, talking to Tracy Shuchart. Warren Pies is coming on. Michael Cow is coming on. Samir Madani is, is going to be on tomorrow, who tracks oil tankers around the world, specifically the illegal, illicit oil tankers that don't want to be found. So he was telling me about a week ago, he said, yeah, I was, I've been tracking this ship for, for years now, but I only recently discovered that she has a sister. Um so that was that's kind of uh, what I've been looking at. But just I want to move out from uh, out from oil. I want to ask Darius, uh, what's your outlook on the currencies? You know, a typical one think. Okay, you you pricing in deflation. You're probably going to be bullish on the dollar relative to the euro. Bullish on the euro relative to emerging market currencies. Bullish on the yen relative to the dollar. Do I have that right?
3: Yeah, generally speaking, um, right now currencies I would argue is the hardest market to trade. Um, you got a lot of neutral VAMs, neutral volatility, just the momentum signals in the context of our global macro risk matrix out there. So it's, you're not getting a lot of directional impulse from either volatility or price changes in, in the currency market. So generally, we're long the dollar, we've been long the dollar for a few months now. Um, and then part of it is, look, we have this you know disinflationary growth slowing view, and that's historically been positive for the dollar. But ultimately, I think the one thing that's happened in the last week or so that really challenges that legacy positioning is the fact that you've had European inflation really accelerate materially in July, our models have that peaking in September. Um, And then you have the European economy is actually outperforming the US economy. Now, part of it is okay, we didn't have this sort of, Europe didn't have the sugar rush that the US did in in, in late part of Q1 and early Q2. And then obviously, Europe had more complications with COVID um, in the spring than we did. So they're kind of, they have this impulse that we don't necessarily have, or more importantly, that we burned off earlier in the year. So, you know, that really put a bid. On the euro on Thursday and Friday, and we're sort of seeing that online line today. But I think currencies are going to be—they're going to be tough. They're going to chop you up because you're not going to get a real meaningful policy shift out of the Fed, out of the ECB, out of the BOJ, or the BOE anytime soon.
1: Yeah. Darius, as always, when you've been on the show, the time has just blown by. We are literally over. It's 4.31 right now. But I wanted to ask you one question from one of our viewers before we call it a day here. Uh, This one comes to us from one of our regular viewers, Prius Omega. And I think it's just a great question. Prius wants to know, do you guys think that TINA is still in full effect? That is, there is no alternative. And he asks, where to park money other than U.S. indices, referring to U.S. equity indices? What are your thoughts, Darius, on TINA?
3: Yeah, no. I mean, look, I, 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 never, I really don't agree with that. I, I think you, there's a, there's a place in the world for balanced, thoughtful portfolio construction. I do believe you can have Tina elements in your portfolio, and we certainly do have plenty of those in terms of our exposure to, you know, to, to defensive sectors and style factors, and growth, growth-oriented sectors and style factors. The one thing I will say about Tina, and this is, this will get a lot of people looking, looking funny when I say this out loud, bonds have outperformed stocks since May. Since the beginning of May, bonds have outperformed stocks. The NASDAQ, the SP, all this stuff, people get beat by the TLT. So this is something I think investors have need one, need to look at the data and actually recognize and internalize what I just said, and more importantly, start to look around and say, hey. Does this mean if I, I need to be max defensive? Does this mean I need to be hybrid defensive relative to Tina? Or does this mean I need to be something else altogether because everything Darius just said is going to be proven wrong by pending inflation data and better pull forward the bet tightening? I think the last thing I just said is a low probability event. I think the middle thing I said in terms of hybrid Goldilocks deflation is, is probably the best, best place to be. But ultimately, in terms of you know the real risk investors, you know, kind of being woken up and surprised by these growth dynamics, the fact that, hey, This could actually happen sooner than we all expect it to in terms of risk assets really repricing the growth trajectory. Again, I don't think it's going to be an expedient repricing of the growth trajectory. But if it is, we obviously have a plan in place to deal with that.
1: Yeah, and we should say that uh, TLT, of course, is the iShares 20-year-plus Treasury bond ETF. Uh, If you look at the performance on that over the last six months, it's been smoking hot. Jack, final thoughts?
2: Well, I'd say if you if you're worried about valuation, you want to get into TLT. Just divide one uh, divide one by the the yield of TLT, and you'll get a pretty expensive valuation that doesn't grow. Uh, I want to say August is a uh, you know typically a slow month or a bad month. I should say for U.S. equities, the S&P 500 has returned negative 0.4% over the past 30 years. So I want to ask you, Ash, and you, Darius, do you guys want the over or the under on negative 0.4 for August?
3: Uh, you go. I'll I'll take the over, and the reason I'll take the over is that you you know everything we just talked about that's negative. I think is is largely priced into equity markets, and the reason I say that is twofold: the sectors and style factors that are leading the market higher and have been for the past seven weeks are have an incredible amount of implied vol premium attached to them. I don't want to unpack that because I know we got to go on time, but that basically means investors in the options market have really bet against those things going up. And so ultimately, if those things don't go down, that options premium gets burned off, and people have to cover their hedges and buy back those, those shares. Second thing, we've been in this historic dispersion regime, right? like we've never seen this kind of dispersion have we have previously, but rarely do we ever see this kind of dispersion. And so it, it either likely it augurs that we're either going to see a real big crackdown in asset markets, you know the, in terms of the stuff that's been leading the defensive growth sectors and style factors really kind of catching down to the cyclical sectors and style factors. Or, what I think is more likely to happen, again, narrowly more likely to happen because we have to have views, narrowly more likely to happen is that the investors go from, you know, we were using the cyclical impulse in the economy to be bullish. Let's just go back to being bullish the way we all know how, which is Jay Powell's our best friend.
1: Yeah. As always, Jack, I'm aggressively neutral. I don't have really strong feelings about this. But I will say, if forced to pick, I would I would take the over as well, uh, for a simpler set of reasons, but related to what Darius said. I think bad news is good news. But I don't have strong feelings about it.
2: Got it. I guess I'll take the under. I'm not, I'm, I'll take it. Well, we
1: just all taken the over, because we've run five minutes long today with this terrific conversation. Too much to say, too little time. Jack, thanks for joining us. Darius, always a pleasure to have you on The Daily Briefing as a guest. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much, Darius. Thanks, Thank Darius. And thanks, Jack. Thanks for watching, everybody.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads.